everyone, welcome to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined as always by my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today we're gonna be talking bank earnings, the broader market, Coinbase's direct listing. Oh, we had a passing this week. Bernie Madoff passed away. And later on, we're gonna be going off the tape in an interview with horse racing legends, Bob Baffert and Jack Wolf with the May 1st Triple Crown kickoff on the horizon at Churchill Downs. Fellas, how are you today? How are you guys doing? Oh, good, Guy. Glad to be here with you, my man. Uh, There's no energy there. There's no energy. So I'm going to start this off with the broader market because why not? And I mentioned Bernie Madoff because on a week where the Dow goes to 34,000 and NASDAQ gets to 14,000, there's zaniness all around. This is the week that Bernie Madoff passes away. I find that interesting, but I also find this interesting as well. Macro stuff, Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley. I'm quoting here, by the way. Underneath the surface, there has been a noticeable shift in leadership, which could be telling us something about the reopening that may not be obvious. Russell 2000 small cap has underperformed the S&P 500 by 8% since the March 12th high. That's number one. By the way, as we tape it, the Russell is actually lower on the day. Savita Submaranian from Bank of America. Five reasons to curb your enthusiasm. A show that I've never seen, Dan Nathan. I'll never will see it. And David Larry or Larry David, another cat with two first names like Danny Moses' friends that we'll talk about later. Apparently, everybody loves it. Here are her five reasons. And I, and I want you guys to opine in a minute. One, sell side indicators less than one point from their euphoria index. Number two. S&P valuation indicates paltry returns over the next decade. As a matter of fact, she thinks down 2% or so over the next decade. Number three, outside, that's two standard deviations return precede losses 75% of the time. Four, Bank of America's fair model S&P 500 is 36.35. You can do the math there. And this is the one that really caught my eye. Equity risk premium dropping below 400 basis points only for the third time since the financial crisis. First time it happened was January 2018. The second time in September of 2018, we saw 10% and 20% peak to trough return declines over those two period of times. I think we're setting up for that again. Now, you look at the market, Danny Moses, and it says everything but. And oh, by the way, yields, which I was so exercised about when they traded to 1.78% in the 10-year a week or so ago, as we tape this is now 1.52% or so. So rates have backed up. All clear for markets? I say not. What do you say, Danny? I say it's it's pretty scary. Like I've been talking about this for weeks. It doesn't feel like a bull market, but obviously we're hitting new highs almost every day on most of the broad indices. You know, we've had things like Archegos happen. We've had things like Greensill happen. Those are large events. Granted, they had no contagion attached to them, but those have been happening. Just imagine what would be happening actually in a down tape. And then Powell's been out almost every day. I guess his PR people are making sure that he knows, that the world knows that he has your back down there. And so, yes, you've had some strong retail sales. The core retail sales weren't as strong when you peel back food and energy, but the Fed doesn't think you need food and energy to live. So that's a whole nother issue. You had a very strong auction on the 30-year treasuries, right? So I think people felt, okay, deep breath. Maybe people were overly short the sector, short the bond market. They've come back a little bit. I think one of the other things that's happening here is that the infrastructure bill, I'm not going to say has stalled, but has lost momentum because a lot of other things going on down in Washington, a lot of infighting 
And I think that people are thinking, okay, well, without the infrastructure bill, there's two things that happen. One, that's less stimulus, so to speak. And two, there's less funding needed, at least near term, by the government to fund these projects. So I think that's also had. And the last thing I'll say is that with the J&J vaccine put on hold for now, hopefully it comes back onto the market with some safety precautions. And you had Pfizer come out today, right before we film this and say, you're going to need a booster, which I think people expected within 12 months. You know, I'm talking about the other side. Goldilocks has been going on for a while. We may have gone back into a little bit of the Goldilocks world for the time being because, okay, well, take a deep breath because, you know, we can push this market a little bit higher. And they have pushed it higher, right? So as we speak, the S&P 500 in three and a half months is up about 10%. The NASDAQ is right back approaching its prior all-time highs. The NASDAQ 100 has already made a new all-time high here. And I think what Guy was kind of alluding to is definitely with the Mike Wilson and the Savita bit was that the small caps, which we knew that were kind of more cyclically exposed, that sort of thing, and more exposed to potentially an infrastructure bill or just the, the domestic strength that we're clearly seeing in the U.S. relative to other parts of the world, it's really stalled here. It's down five, six percent or so from its recent all-time highs. We've seen a re-rotation, at least in the stock market, back into mega cap tech stocks. We know that those top five or six names make up 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100, a little more than 20% of the S&P 500. So again, we have the situation where they're doing all the heavy lifting. Um, I think the rate thing is really important. You know, when you think about Savita's call that we pulled forward a lot of performance in the stock market, it kind of reminds you of, let's say, the lost decades that we had in the Japanese markets, right? When we had this situation of sort of stagflation, which might be where we're going. Is that something that uh, is on anyone else's radar here, guys? Well, I mean, I think that's something that you should absolutely be concerned about. A lot of people talking about it now. And listen, you know, I find it fascinating that the market goes up with rates going higher. Market goes up with rates going lower. Market goes up, dollar goes higher. Market goes up, dollar goes lower. It's fascinating to me that the market takes none of these things into consideration. Something has to give at a certain point. Again, I've been right about rates the last couple of weeks. I've been wrong. I never thought we'd get back down to one and a half, but here we are. But I do think we're going to make that push towards 2%. But I'll say this. You see the retail sales numbers. You see some of these CPI numbers that have come out. They are hot as can possibly be. And oh, by the way, you look at soft commodities through the roof. You look at lumber. You look at Goldman Sachs's call on copper. I think it was on Thursday. All these things point to huge numbers of inflation. Markets taking it for granted right now. Or is it, Guy? I mean, listen, we had Fed Chair Powell on 60 Minutes Sunday night saying the economy looks to be at an inflection point. If the data's running hot and the Fed's telling you they're not going to do anything, they're not going to taper, right, and they're not going to raise rates, then what else does the stock market have to do? Because inflation is actually good for most of our companies, if you think about it, right? And we have all of this money now, again, this $2 trillion in added stimulus that just got passed that are starting to hit bank accounts that sort of thing. So it's going to be spent. I, I guess my point is, it's like, yes, it is very hard to construct a bear case right now for stocks. The economy, if you talk about this Goldilocks thing, it's really hard to see unless this vaccination worldwide just kind of really slowed down in a meaningful manner and other variants were to take hold. But at this point, given all of the monetary support globally, all of the liquidity sloshing around globally, and then listen, this infrastructure bill it's going to get done through reconciliation. They're going to push it through here. I think the Biden administration knows, and we talked about it last week, they got like one shot here, and I think they're going to make this happen. So to me, does the stock market, has it pulled forward a lot of really good data and, and, and an economy that looks a lot better in the second half of the year? 
probably, I'm not telling you we're screaming higher. I do mention this though. It's really interesting though. And I just said this re-rotation back into the mega cap names. We're also seeing some higher, like speculative sort of high valuation names catching a bid this week. So I think that's kind of interesting too. As long as you don't like catch up, you know, you're going to be, you know, you're fine. Or I say catch up, it's catch up. I know, but that's how we say it in the South. But you're so catch up. So that's just an indication of product shortages, prices on toilet paper and towels going up. We've already seen that from, we talked about that, Kimberly Clark doing that. The one thing on 60 Minutes that Powell said, I think was contradictory. And the one thing where I think he could be really exposed and wrong, he made a comment, don't quote me on this, but it was something effect of everybody thought there was going to be inflation for the last 20 or 25 years, and there hasn't been. And then he says, so why are you led to believe that if it moves higher, that it's going to stay there? I think the exact opposite. Everyone thinks that there's ever going to be inflation. If it goes higher, why do you think it's going to come back? I actually think it moves higher from there because there's a reason that that's happening. So there's product shortages that are out there. Product prices are moving higher, to Guy's point. I think it's an issue. Now, it may hurt earnings of companies in the near term if you can't have product to sell, but it, the demand is still there as this you know economy comes out of hibernation. That's exactly right. The demand is still there. I mean, he's so full of shit. And yes, I use the word. And if he's listening to this podcast, you're welcome to come on, JP. We'd love to speak to you because the fact that you know they can say some of the things that they say, no inflation over the last 20 years. Well, what planet are you living on? Yeah, the way you measure inflation, there's no inflation. For the rest of us schmoes, there's been inflation all around. Just look around. And bo- oh, by the way, and we talk about this, when that dollar starts to go lower, and by the way, it's going to start to go lower, that's inflationary as well. But I guess that's for another time. Listen, it's funny you mentioned Jerome Powell. I was flipping around the other night, Sunday night, and I saw him on 60 Minutes. I said, why are they replaying this stupid Jerome Powell interview again? He was just on six months ago. Turns out he was on again. Why are they floating that guy out for the second time in less than a year? It's beyond my ability to reason. Anyway, and and, and I have to say this. I'm not a fan. I'm sure he's a lovely right, guy. But guy and Donnie, hold on one second. Okay, I listened to that interview, and they're trying to talk to the people. When you go on 60 Minutes, you are talking to the people. Most of this country, unfortunately, does not watch CNBC's Fast Money. There you go, Danny Boy. He's just kind of talking <laughs> to the people, and he said something that was right out of the Guy Adami playbook. He said there's probably, you know, there's tens of millions of Americans who are really suffering right now. They're out of work, and we are trying programs that are going to target them. Now, I don't believe that them buying corporate bonds and and all the other stuff is targeting the tens of millions of Americans that sadly are still out of work. So the $120 billion a month is somehow targeting the 35 million people in this country that's 1930s stuff going on. It's flat out depression for those people. So that $120 billion of them buying Apple bonds is somehow helping those people. It's complete horseshit. I use the word again. I am not a fan at all when he said we're going to do everything we can to support the economy, Danny Moses, what he was saying was we're going to do everything we possibly can to support the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. And in the midst of all of his PR campaign events, which, he, which he's been having, one thing he said, too, which, listen, if rates stay low like this for a little bit longer, but the economy seems fine, you will hear the word taper. There will be talk about a QE tapering and he will test the waters. It's going to leak out. He'll, you know, they'll put it out with some Fed governor regionally. He'll say it just to see what happens to the market. So that will happen. That, that, that is my prediction. Not that he will actually end up tapering, but that he will mention 
tapering. I think you're right. They're going to have to float a trial balloon and see what it does. I mean, the only thing they're watching in terms of that trial balloon is what the market does because they're a slave to the market. And we saw that in October of 2018, Dan Nathan, when the market went down how much over the course of a month and a half? 19.9%. Thank you. Not 20, not 19.8, All right. But here's the thing. I play the heel sometimes on our program here. Okay. But like listening to you guys bash Jerome Powell and the motives, like I don't really get that. I, I, I get that they don't want to see a wealth effect or a negative wealth effect from the stock market going down. Let me stop you right there. And, and you're right. But it's not that it's Jerome Powell. It's whoever's sitting in that seat. And I think Guy and myself, and I know many other people, are just frustrated that we can't get to a fundamental base on this market ever because they muddy the waters so much. And the belief system of this is so dangerous over time. And what I fear most is that the that the faith in the Fed, if it ever goes, when it goes, what is the bottom of this market? So what happens? It's it's you know, and I've been living this and experiencing this. Hold on, Danny, the market or the economy? Because I go back to February 2020, okay, and how they moved so quickly, okay, to lower the Fed funds rate and to, to, to introduce some programs so that credit markets didn't seize up. They saw what was coming. We were going to have a, a pandemic of epic proportions. It could have caused an economic crash globally. So they moved, okay? So when, when history looks back on early 2020 and what the Fed or didn't do and what Congress did or didn't do and what the White House did or didn't do, I think the Fed comes out looking great, guys. Because I'll tell you one thing, if we had credit markets seize up, can you imagine what sort of situation we would be in right now? And they could have been printing whatever they want. We would have lost massive industries right now. The market is the economy. That's how the Fed sees it. That's not how an intelligent person sees it, but that's how they see it. That's the feedback loop. But here's my problem. There was companies even pre-COVID that were probably going out of business. They got funding from the government, whether that was through the high yield bond market, whatever it was, and have gotten a new lease on life. Nothing's going to change with their business plans and nothing's going to change when the economy goes into a normal cycle. My point is that you've extended the life. Is that good? Did more people stay employed? Sure. But is it going to rope more people in, in both the equity and the the bond market? Yes. I'm saying is that the Fed has got your back mentality applied to the stock market is not how I learned about fundamental investing. And yes, it hasn't been my type of market for so long. And you got to check your brain in the closet. That's just very hard for me to do. Earth to boomers here. I don't know if you guys uh, have seen this crypto ecosystem. It's it's north of $2 trillion and growing every day. So my point is here, guys, it wasn't the way we were trained, but it's all changing. And let me tell you, the, the fact of the matter is, so we got the kids today talking about DeFi and the decentralized, you know, kind of like utopia that we're all going to live in going forward. And then just so you know, you know, all these MMT folks, they're all boomers. They're all boomers and they're winning. You know who's not winning? The people who are screaming about the Fed chair going on CBS in 60 Minutes. Those people are not winning. If that's winning, I want to lose every single time. And it's <laughs> and, and in my opinion, and I think Danny, I mean, I think if I'm reading between the lines, all they're basically doing is prolonging the inevitable. They're not allowing corporate Darwinism to take over. And they're prolonging what should have happened years ago. It's going to happen at a certain point. Guy, 
You lived through the financial crisis. There was really no corporate Darwinism, right? We've been privatizing gains and socializing losses for decades and decades and decades. So the capitalism that you guys read about in books back in the 70s when you guys were in high school, it doesn't exist anymore. We actually only started doing that if you think about it. It's, it's, you're right. I wouldn't say decades and decades, probably the last 15 years. And it's terrible and it's ridiculous. And the fact that we think we live in this great capitalist society is horse hockey, as Colonel Sherman T. Potter said, because the Fed has taken that away. And again, listen, I can't do the counterfactual thing. I can't prove what would happen if we'd allowed some of these things to take place. But it is what it is. And I think to Danny's point, you trade the market you have, not the one that you want. And Guy, before you move on, I want to say last closing comment on, and maybe we'll get maybe we'll get through this episode actually without talking about Bitcoin and digital currency. I doubt it. But why is it $2 trillion, Dan? It's $2 trillion because people are using the the Fed thesis to bolster their digital decentralized currency network. And they're using that as an excuse to go even deeper. And that's what zero rates can cause for a long time. And that is ironically another asset class that could get hit. I agree with that. I mean, it is obviously, it is a response to what happened, obviously, in the global financial crisis. Um, so yes, you do make that point. But what I'm saying is you're getting it from both sides here. And I think in the middle, it's not particular. And just to close that out, I mean, this, my belief is everything we're seeing in this DeFi movement, Coinbase, all these things we're about to talk about is, is been born from these Fed policies. I think, but for that, you never would have heard of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin was created out of fiat currencies that we're living in the midst of right now. Anyway, we also had bank earnings this week. And I think we all agree that bank earnings were fantastic. And they should have been. Dan alluded to this a week or so ago on Fast Money. When Credit Suisse said, I think, and please don't at me, Dan, you know the number specifically, they were going to take basically a $5 billion loss on the back of that Archegos thing. And oh, by the way, they're only going to lose about $1.6 billion for the quarter. So you can do the math. Spoke to the fact that they were going to have a tremendous quarter. And then we saw it in terms of JP Morgan, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and others. Now, your question you should ask is, why is JP Morgan trading sideways to slightly lower since earnings? Here's my view, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think. JP Morgan came out and said tangible book value was $66.70. That came as a disappointment to the street. They started doing the math and said, hey, guess what? JP Morgan's trading about 2.3 times tangible book. That's nosebleed levels. For comparison, City now trades at a discount to tangible book. Their tangible book came in around $77.50. So my big metric for banks all along has been one. I look at tangible book and I start doing the math. Well, tangible book is, you know, having traded this sector for a long time, ROE is obviously a factor that takes everything into account, including your book value. And the ROEs have been very strong. But I think they got trapped a little bit here with leading up to everyone knew it was going to be a big number. That's first of all, it was going to be a big one. Second of all, rates have come down. And the financials, as you know, program trading are, are tied to rates. The other thing is that we know consumer credit looks great because of the STEMI payments. And these banks can release reserves ad nauseum when they want to. So you don't give credit for that either. And can the banking get any better than it is now? Can you repeat Q1? So people are just taking profits here. That being said, the banks are probably still some of the safest places to be. And I agree with you and what Dan said last week about Citibank relative to JP Morgan. I don't think it's run as well as JP Morgan. But that being said, everything has its price. So I think the, the sector was due for a, a pause, but I think it got hung up a little bit here in the rates and the 
credit reserves being released. Well, you said the sector was due for a pause. The only stock this week that has actually paused was JP Morgan, to Guy's point. It was also trading at the risk's valuation relative to its tangible book. So it looks to be that there's a playing a little bit of catch up in some of these other names. And it wasn't just big money center banks like Wells Fargo and City that are doing okay. Bank of America is actually down. It looks like that was a pristine quarter, but the investment banks, Goldman and Morgan, are trading pretty well too. And listen, at the end of the day, you know, the banks were really underperforming for most of 2020, even as a lot of tech and kind of these winners of the pandemic, if you will, really started flexing at mid mid year into the year end. Banks didn't take off until we got the vaccine news until we got the election news. And they really outperformed, I think, since then. But they're in a really nice uptrend. If you look at that XLF here, and I think if you're long banks, you probably stay long because there's probably a lot more loan loss reserves to be unlocked, which could kind of unleash some more investment into some higher growth areas. So to me, I think it makes sense on a valuation basis. I get guys' trepidation with JP Morgan. That's a great word, trepidation. Now, this is we're going to talk about something you guys know a lot more about than I do, but obviously Coinbase this week as well, much anticipated and came with a lot of fanfare and it's lived up to the hype. At least you guys can speak to this, but Coinbase this week, a lot of VCs in this sucker and a very mature company that finally came out. At a certain point, I think it traded on par or maybe slightly lower in terms of market cap as Goldman Sachs. And and does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe it does. I mean, it sort of speaks to some of the things that Jamie Dimon was saying in his letter. But Danny, thoughts about the Coinbase, whatever it was, direct listing <laughs> this week. Well, people were saying, oh, was it down? Was it up? They just direct listed. And what's the valuation? What's crazy to me is that I think there was a $40 billion sway evaluation from the time that it listed to the from the low to the high. I think that was around the number. I'm not sure. And that to me is a little bit disturbing because I, again, I go back to the people that are trading on Robinhood that are so excited to own a piece of Coinbase, they buy it. So that to me is a little bit disconcerting. But we talked last week about what would I rather own, Robinhood or Coinbase? And I think it's clearly Coinbase. And now the argument has become, is it tied to the price of Bitcoin? And the answer is, I think on the margin, yes, because thematically it is, but it is much more than that. And I do think that it should trade in this market that's insane and, and crazy, I have no problem with the stock, I'm guessing right now, at a 70 to 80 billion market cap, somewhere in that range. And it you know, remains to be seen. This is a company that's printing money, at least they're making money. We see all these other companies come out at these unicorn valuations that really don't have it. So it remains to be seen. But let's not kid ourselves. It's tied to the price of digital currencies. Yeah. So, Guy, you mentioned some of the early investors, and there's no shortage. I'm reading a headline right now that KD, Kevin Durant, was invested in Coinbase in 2017, probably through a VC firm. And this was funny. This is a tweet from my friend Adam Bain. He's the former Twitter COO um, guy. You know him. He had this tweet yesterday. I wish I was VC Braggs today. Today is your Super Bowl. VC Braggs. Ready for this? This is VCs congratulating themselves. And the tagline is, they're adding value and they're very proud of it. So there was a lot of people who were were able to take victory laps. But the funny thing about this is that there's one gentleman and he's a New Yorker and his name is Fred Wilson. And he started a firm called Union Square Ventures, I think probably 25 years ago in Flatiron, New York. And he invested, I think he was the first institutional investor in Coinbase. And I think he owns the stock at about 20 cents. And his value of his position is over $3 billion, which is crazy. And the funny thing is, he has a very widely read blog. It's avc.com. He is AVC. And of all things, he is not on Twitter bragging about his Coinbase. 
He blogged this morning. Last night I watched the New York Knicks win their fourth straight game on the road in New Orleans. They're 29 and 27. He's blogging about the hapless, your hapless New York Knicks guy, and he could be taking, he could be dancing in the streets about his coin base. What does that mean to you? Good for him, number one. I I love, you know, (laughs) 20 cents to where it is now. Genius, billionaire, good for him. In terms of the Knicks, just quickly, Knicks are playing outstanding basketball. They lead the NBA in team defense, by the way, under Coach Thibodeau. That hasn't happened in decades. And this is a team for the first time in 20 years you can actually get behind and root for. So, yes, they're two games above 500. Not a big deal. But you know what? It is a big deal when you think about what everybody thought they'd be this time six or seven months ago. Good for the Knicks. They're on the right track for the first time since the 90s. So we obviously have a very Wall Street-centric crowd. And I think what's interesting about this Coinbase deal, it's like the convergence of kind of Silicon Valley and Wall Street here. And I'll just say this about Fred Wilson. If you read his blog every day, there are little tidbits, man. I'll tell you, I read a blog post that he had on a company called Helium. It's a decentralized Wi-Fi network. He put out a coupon code. This was in November 2019, Okay, for this helium router that you hook up to your spectrum router, your cable vision router, and it mines. It basically participates in a decentralized Wi-Fi network. And let me tell you something. Those coins that I've been owning and I, I read his, his blog, they're worth 15 bucks now. They're worth 15 bucks. My point is read smart guys like this. Don't listen so much to dumb guys like us, I guess. Dan, I was trying to avoid like digital currencies and stuff today. And yeah. every time I try to just really you know, immerse myself in this stuff I do. And then I come across this Avogachi and I just have to talk oh, about man. it. So I yeah. read this thing. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to take a deep breath and try to learn. And then you purchase a portal and you summon a ghost and you, yeah, can, and you can buy it hats and skateboards. And I could think about like Club Penguin that my kids used to play where you pay $5 for a month and then you can buy the penguin things. And I'm trying to think, what's the difference here? And you can kill the other ghosts or, and you can take their coins with you. And then you get to lend your Ethereum and then you get it back. And then I rip up the paper and I say, I'm done with this shit again and I can't go through this anymore. So God bless everyone out there in digital currency land. God bless Avogachi, Derche. But hold on, you know, Danny, but but that article and you sent it around and I think it's really interesting that, you know, that was in Barron's. That was a Barron's article talking about DeFi, talking about this protocol that existed for a game, but then they drew the connection to, okay, well, maybe REITs and and lending and all this sort of stuff. And I thought it was really interesting. And then if you go look at the the token that, that that whole thing is based on and you look at the size, you want to know what the market cap of this AAV E is that no. they reference in there? No. It's six billion dollars. Okay. I can't do it anymore. It's six billion dollars. It's trading at 471. It's up 20% today alone. It's up a hundred dollars just in the last couple days or some. It's it's the wild, wild west out there, man. Thank you, Federal Reserve. Exactly. Fine. Right. Yeah. But we're not equipped for it. All right, moving yeah. on. Now listen, before we go off the tape, and I'm thrilled by the way, we got Bob Baffert. I mean, he's a he is a legend. I mean, he really is fantastic. I'm looking forward to speaking to him. We're looking forward to speaking to Jack as well. Is that correct, Danny? I mean, I know they're yeah, good Jack guys. Wolf. Yep, I've invested in you know, you don't want to be my investor in a partnership. I like bought in a few years, like you buy into like a series of years as an investor. All those years, the horses turned into glue. Other years that everyone else invested in, including like Chris Morrow, owner of the New York Giants, all those guys, it's like laughing, drinking mint juleps at the finish line. So 
I'm always not a part of that, but anyway, that's why I'm here. I think, listen, by the way, I mean, if you want to change your luck, the next horse you get around, name that horse on the tape, and that's going to be the next <laughs> Triple Crown winner. Just Fair throwing enough. it out there. But I know something caught your eye. Kathy Wood sold Tesla to buy Coinbase. Good for her, I guess, Danny Moses. I guess. You know, I've really tried to avoid Tesla while we three of us have been together for the last three months, and I, I think I've done a good job not mentioning it. And it just gets to the point sometimes where I just, I just want to explode. And I just, I'm going to rant here for two minutes. Okay. And this is not, and I will disclose that I have a put option position in Tesla. So I want that disclosed out there that I actually have a position in this thing. Okay. But not, it's not near term and I don't really care. And I do it because I don't want to be there the day that it blows up. I, I have to be a part of it anyway. So Tesla change their so their orders came in for the first quarter right they had kind of walked down the street from kind of the 180 to kind of the 165 level and and all of a sudden they come out at 185 so it's a miracle that they beat and we're talking about adjusted earnings potentially in q1 of somewhere between 85 and 95 cents of a stock that trades at you know 700 and something dollars like it's ludicrous how it trades but a couple things caught my eye recently with you know with the company so the competition's coming out and you guys can certainly attest to that you got Ford, you got Mercedes, Audi came out with their Q4. But the Ford thing's interesting because Jim Farley, the Ford CEO, made a comment and he kind of took a rip at Elon Musk. And he said, we're excited to test our facial recognition technology for our Blue Cruise feature. And we tested it in the real world so our customers don't have to. So what he's referring to was Tesla has a beta. They've had a beta version that they've been charging full price for an autonomous driving now for some time. So this guy, Jim Farley, the Ford CEO, is a cousin to Chris Farley who we all knew from Silent Live, great comedian, fun actor, all that. And he shows a clip of Chris Farley in uh, Tommy Boy, you know, driving off the road in one of the scenes and takes a dig at the guy's dead cousin. You know, that just shows you the type of person that Musk is. I digress. More importantly for, for the company, what happened on March 25th, 26th, and 27th? They started double billing customers for their cars coming on delivery. Oh, sorry, so bad, it's our mistake. And then maybe they refund it. Oh, is it weird? Maybe after the quarter gets reported, right? And then these solar orders that were supposed to be coming, people got priced, repriced their contracts up from, let's say, 35000 to put a solar panel or a solar roof on up to seventy five. Oh, don't worry, we'll take care of it. There is no customer service. And my point is that this is a $700 billion company. And these other auto companies are, are going to manufacture correctly. They're not going give, to give the consumers a, a false sense of security. And the last thing I want to say is this. When you look at WorldCom and Enron and the companies that blew up and that were total total financial frauds out there, they, yes, people lost money on them, but they didn't kill anybody. You have investigations ongoing right now from the NHTSA looking at these Tesla autopilot crashes, right? And yes, there are several of them that are under investigation. Like something needs to be done to rein this company in. And it's just frustrating to see on all the levels. And sorry, last thing, because I'm, I'm on a rant here. I want people to realize that, that follow Elon Musk, and, and that's great. It's a cool company. He's a visionary, sure. I'll give you that. But they had $1.6 billion in EV credits last year that they sold to other companies that, that needed it to buy these credits so they could still make fossil fuel companies. Without that number, they would have lost $800 million last year. I just don't see how this is a $700 billion company still at this point with fake tunnels that are being built in, in various states and cities across, across the country. So that's it. I'm done with that. We can move on, and you probably won't have any comments. But, man, it is frustrating to watch. Danny, we are not moving on. 
I do have a couple comments. That was one heck of a rant there. Okay. I'm, I'm exhausted. Glad, I, <laughs> I'm glad that you disclosed your put position. And you know what's really funny? As a trader, you just said something I thought fascinating. He's like, I just got to be there when it blows up, right? So you, you basically said, <laughs> I am willing to risk a certain amount of money at a certain point of time if this stock is below that point. And I understand. Here's the problem that I have with Tesla. And I basically stopped talking about it each night. We've kind of moved on a little bit on our show. The world is still fascinating with this company. When you think about it, it's what, trading around 740, $700 billion market cap. It is 50% of the global auto markets market cap right there. And so you said the competition's coming. I have the competition. I have that Ford Mustang Mach-E, the EV. It's hot. It's awesome. I love it. And I think there's a lot of people who are going to be new entrants to this market. I guess the only point that I'm pushing back in is that the stock is up a thousand percent over the last, let's call it 18 months or whatever those lows were in 2020. They are in the proverbial driver's seat as it relates to the investment community, okay, right now. And the only other thing I'll say is, is that a lot of despacking activity we've seen in the EV related space here. And they were all, they had a bid, man, right? They had a bid as Tesla was skipping up. It seemed like 50 bucks a day over the last few months or so, but they've all kind of fallen apart. And so for whatever reason, it feels like Tesla is like gaining whatever mojo that they had. And it's becoming stronger and more embedded. And it's the only pure play. Does that make sense? Yeah. And plus his little Bitcoin thing that he threw in there that now, yeah. you know, he can track Bitcoin even more. And if you look at their 10K, what they said in their accounting was they would treat it as an accounting gain. It's another way for them to kind of play around with numbers. And yeah, he did buy it a while ago. And yes, he probably does have a billion dollar gain on Bitcoin. And yes, some days the Tesla stock does trade. But to your point, Dan, these other EV companies are coming out and they're underperforming. There was an IPO called Too Simple. It came out. It's an eight and a half billion dollar valuation right now. And it's a tech company for autonomous driving partnered with Navistar. Investors are Volkswagen and UPS and a large Chinese investor. So like those are real companies potentially. Granted, those won't have revenues probably until 2024 either. But the point is that there's a lot of competition on the heels. And you're right. If people want to say, oh, this is my trade. This is how I'm expressing my EV trade. And also maybe people want to say, oh, and maybe a little Bitcoin. So yeah, he likes to change the narrative. He likes to distract. And I think eventually this will catch up with him. Danny, I'm on Bloomberg right here. I just posted up uh, Tesla Equity CN to get the top news stories. Three of the top 10 stories are about Dogecoin. It's ridiculous. What, what I'm saying is there's every ridiculousness thing that you could think of that's going on as far as stonks, as far as SPACs, as far as you saw that New York mag headline the other day or cover. It's all there. It's all wrapped up. It's crazy. I get it. Only thing I'm just kind of pushing back is I loved your rant, man. That was great. It's fact-based oh. and there's, there's numbers on it. The only thing that I'm pushing back, and I'm going to end it here, is that you are fighting a cult, okay? And you reference WorldCom, and you reference these scams that existed, you know, 20 years ago. They were just fraud. They were just criminal, negligent fraud. And you mentioned that, you know, people are dying from the autonomous or this and that or whatever. I'm saying, I think they're well-intentioned. I, I mean, I think he keeps misrepresenting where they are as far as autonomy, and maybe people are not taking the sort of precautions that they should. They're taking snoozes as their model. LS is cruising down the 101 sort of thing. But part of that is on the consumer, in my opinion. I mean, I, I wouldn't get in that car and put it autonomous, would you? Well, but you're supposed to put trust in the government, right? That the government's going to have the consumer's best interest. We actually like those parts of the government that look out for us, right? For our health and well-being. And listen, I know the SEC doesn't want to feel responsible for taking down a $700 billion company because they're saying to themselves, too many retail people own it. We don't want to be. We'll let them trip on themselves first. 
they've tripped many, many times and nothing has happened. So you're right. Maybe I'm wasting my time. Some of the smartest people I know have told me, stop wasting your time and energy, go on to other things. And they're probably right. But from an intellectual curiosity perspective, I got to see this thing out to some degree. So that's all I got. Good money after bad is what they say. When we come back, we're going to have our off the tape interview with Bob Baffert and Jack Wolf. We're now joined by Bob Baffert. Bob is the most successful horse trainer in the world. He won the Triple Crown in 2015 with American Pharaoh and in 2018 with Justify. He's won six Kentucky Derbies, including last year's with Authentic. Bob is based in California and headquartered out of Santa Anita Track. We're also joined by Jack Wolf. Jack is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. He's a former Wall Street trader and former hedge fund manager. Jack started buying horses in 2000 and launched his horse partnership, Starlight Racing, in 2002. Jack owned a percentage of Justify, Baffert trained, and owes a percentage of Authentic, the 2020 Derby winner, also Baffert trained. Starlight has over 30 grade one wins. Fellas, welcome to On The Tape. All right, well, it's great to have Jack Wolf and Bob Baffert on today as we go off the tape because we're in derby season. We're in triple crown season, and uh, what two better people to talk to than champion owners and champion trainers. And I just want to start with Jack here because, Jack, we met in 1996, and I want you to talk about your history on Wall Street, obviously, because our listeners would love that. And you were running a hedge fund, and I was trying to make you money as a broker. Don't know how well that went. And then uh, it went so well for both of us that you decided to get into the horse business. And I was lucky enough to be along for the ride on some of that. And so it's been a real pleasure to have such a close friendship with you, as well as bet on horses and own horses with you. So maybe if we could start, Jack, with kind of your quick background on on how you got into the business and uh, we can go from there. Yeah, I always like to be involved in these low risk business like horses and hedge funds in the market. (laughs) Horses and T-bills here. But anyway, as Danny said, I started actually as a block trader at uh, Jeffries and Company in the early 80s and um, was there until the early 90s. Left them and and started a little hedge fund. And uh, I was doing great until I met Danny and then our performance went (laughs) the wrong way. But (laughs) just kidding. Uh, I'm going to guess we were shorting stuff in 98 instead of in 2000. That's probably going to be what happened. But go ahead. Sorry. Right. (laughs) Right, Uh, Exactly. But anyway, he he covered me and then he moved to uh, New York. We've remained friends from there on. And uh, I decided my wife and I decided to uh, give the horse racing business a go. After I shut down the hedge fund in, uh, I'd say, 2000 or 1999, something like that, and moved from Atlanta to uh, Sarasota, Florida, and then 14 years ago, 13 years ago, moved back to uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So here we are. So your passion, though, you grew up in Louisville originally, right? Right. This guy mentioned in the intro, you played uh, football at Murray State. So your your roots are there, so you always had a passion for for horses. So it started... As gambling on them, or how did it start? I think a, a lot of people that own horses, they, their story is their grandfather or father took them to the races, got exposed to it early, and same story with me. But it's more my grandmother and my father, and actually my mother for that matter. So I was started off young, just going to the tracks and from a, a gambling and loving the horses type of situation. Then really didn't have the time or money to devote to it until uh, we got into it in the late 
like I said, in 99 or 2000. And uh, we were looking, Laurie and I were looking for something to do together. And uh, well, we put some money up and got a bloodstock agent, bought some yearlings and uh, got lucky with the first crop. I don't think it's luck, but so with that, this brings in Bob, because when you buy horses, you got to have a trainer. And I know you guys have linked up in the last few years. And and Bob, thanks for coming on. And I guess we've known each other, you know, on and off for only probably a year or so. And Jack was kind enough to make the introduction, but I followed you for much longer and congrats on all the recent success. And tell me what it's been like to partner with Starlight and Jack over the last couple of years. Well, I really didn't know Jack that well. I got to know him a few years ago and I just realized one thing about our business, we're always competing with each other and, and trainers, we're like chess players. You know, we really don't talk to each other that much because we're just competing against each other. But, you know, I've got to know a lot of, of owners in the game that I started talking to Jack and we just hit it off. And Jack, he understands that you lose more than you win in this game. So you want to be around people that are a lot of fun when you lose. And Jack's one of them. And um, so we got to know each other. And, you know, he loves the horses. He loves the sport. But he actually, you know, he's very competitive. But at the same time, you know, when you're around people, successful people, brings more success and that's one thing i've learned i've surround myself not you know with my in my employees but if you surround yourself with successful people you learn from them and being around jack jack is is a winner you know some guys just i've seen people in our in our business they throw a lot of money at it nothing because they want to do it their way or whatever but jack's very open-minded you know he learns and he listens and he knows you know, we'll, you know, we're not going to be right all the time, but, you know, we've been pretty sort of close. So um, it, it just makes it easier. And for me, as, as a trainer, I don't feel I have to press. There's no pressing involved. I know I have people behind me. They believe in me and they know I'm going to do what's best for the horse and what, what's right. So when you have that kind of working relationship, things seem to click a lot better. But Jack's a winner. And since he got in the business, he had good luck right off the bat. So he, he's pretty sharp at acknowledging talent with horses or people or whatever. But I think that's the strongest point. Jack Wolf, the minute he came into business, boom, he was right there every year with something. Well, Bob, you're a winner too. And it's pretty amazing. From you know 2015, you win the Triple Crown for the first time. I think it was American Pharaoh. You do it again in 2018 with Justify. But you came close in the 90s. 97 with Silver Charm. 98 with Real Quiet. 2001 with Point Given. By the way, Silver Charm might be the best horse you ever had. That's just my opinion. Can you speak to what it was like not only to win because i'm sure that was amazing but those 97 98 2001 what was that like getting two out of the three well it started out in 96 the first time i went there with this little gelding a cal calbred i didn't think i was hoping to maybe run fourth and he led all the way down the stretch and he got beat an inch on the last jump and i thought wow i might as well quit because that was my only chance and i just bought Silver Charm that week for 80000 and in some little Florida sale, some, you know, his breathing wasn't all that great, but, you know, he was a, he was an athlete. And then he comes and wins it. Then I remember going to the Preakness, and I didn't really care if I won the Preakness or not because I just won the Kentucky Derby. I was just flying high, you know. And then he wins the Preakness, and I'm like, what do I do now? Now I got to go to Belmont. I really didn't know that much. So 
and we got there and he ran second, had the lead, got nailed, come back, win the Derby again with a $17,000 horse, win the Preakness. Same thing, have the lead, get beat an inch on the wire in the Triple Crown. Now that's sickening, you know, but, and then War Emblem, you know, he, I bought him a month before for a million dollars for a Saudi Arabian guy and who owned Point Given, who should have won the Triple Crown, but he didn't run well in, in the Derby. And so um, a lot of, I call them near misses. They call them failures, whatever they want to call them. But I, and then when American Pharaoh came along, I kept, I kept seeing the story. And I will never forget when American Pharaoh turned for home to, in my heart, I felt he's a winner. He looked like the winner all the way around there, but I kept waiting for the story to just, go away because i saw a horse coming and go here this is where it happens the horse comes and nails you on the wire when to finally get it it was such a i felt like wow it can be done 37 years it was probably the greatest sports moment that i've been involved in and then to come back with justify you know a few years later it was you know another and we had jack on board and uh it, it's something i just feel really fortunate one thing about it i've been surrounded by really good clients and, and good people and it's been a lot of fun a lot of heartaches a lot of lows you know like any sport there's been times where i thought i should have been a farmer you know but then all of a sudden things turn around but all in all it's, it's been a great experience and, and and the people that i've met have been incredible i would say this your comment about jack that he's a good loser you said when he loses he doesn't get upset well we have kind of a there's a group of us that either own horses with jack or go to the track with jack and we get to experience his things and we kind of all have a method that when he does lose, we kind of just take a few steps back. See, you're the one that gets to be down in the track in the track in the paddock. You don't get to him for five minutes, but the first 30 seconds, I kind of don't want to be necessarily around in the first 30, but I will say, speaking of winning, let me give you these stats for Starlight. 22% win rate, 51% in the money. And for those listeners out there, win rate's obvious. 51% is on the board. So that's win place and show. Over $45 million in prize money, these horses, you know, in that span, 31 grade ones, and most people know the grade ones is only the Preakness Derby and Belmont, but there's many other races in that, and 33 grade twos and threes. So that record, if if there's a – I know the buyer rating for speed and all that stuff. I don't know if people look in other sports and play money ball, but that would be – has to be near the top of the list. So, Jack, maybe just talk about that success. And I also want to ask you, I know as of this moment, there is no derby horse – that you have running. I mean, you can only win it every so often. It's you've won two of the last three years with horses, but is there a chance we could see you somehow still at this point? And then I'm going to ask Bob about his Derby thoughts. You know, it's funny, but we've sort of been spoiled, especially since uh, we've been with Bob and Bob is obviously such a good trainer. And he, and like you said, I, I think he and I became very close over these last few years. And I've learned to trust his instincts of when, He's high on a horse. You know, that horse 90% of the time is going to do what he thinks it's going to do. But fast forward to this year, I mean, we had, <laughs> Starlight had a part ownership in four or five horses with Bob that we had accumulated some points and we were going into the big point races as either favorite or second or third. And uh, we came up short in each case. I mean, at one time, the partner was saying, how many, you think we'll have three or four horses in the Derby? I said, if we have one, we'll be lucky, okay? It's so hard to get there. So you've been there, so you don't feel like you got to go out and do it again. You've done it a few times, so you're not as... Well, you know, I, I think Bob's been quoted as saying this, and I, I believe him, too. I believe in what he's saying is, in, 
If you don't have a horse that's got a shot, you don't want to be there anyway. I mean, you might feel like you want to be there for the week before and the parties and this and that and the backside, and, but it's no fun to run 12th or 14th in the Derby or any race for that matter. And I think Bob has had the discipline uh, to approach it that way. And when I first got started in the middle years, I had a number of horses that we put in there that qualified that just didn't run any good. So the same way, Jack, that you maybe want to get rid of some of your partners over time because they didn't turn out to be as as fun or to be with as you wanted to. And we'll talk about your partnership, which I think is the best in the business in a minute. Bob, the question I have for you is people are bringing horses to you all the time or trying to, and you have to make, make the choice of which owners you want to work with. You mentioned you like Jack, but you must fire owners from time to time. And how do we think about how big your stable is and how many owners that you kind of deal with at the Jack level right now? I could probably have more clients and more horses, but I like to keep my numbers down because I just want quality. And, you know, when you first got, I started, I trained for different personalities and, and now I'm, I've gotten to the point in my life where I get to train for people that I really enjoy. Like when they, when I see their number come up on my phone and we, we've all been through it. Like when I see a number, I go, oh, there's Jack or there's whatever. And, and I've been through days where I see a number come up. I go, oh, I don't want to take this call, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. and right. so we've all been through that. Like, oh, I got a, I got a stomach gig when I see this, this call coming through. Oh, I got to talk to this guy, you know, but I've dealt with different personalities and everybody's different. And you got to be about a little half crazy to be in this game anyway, because of, because you get beat so many times. And so you got to take the good with the bad, but you know, I get upset when I get beat this last week, Arkansas Derby. I thought I had the, one of the top Derby horses concert tour and looked like he couldn't get beat turns for home. He just doesn't, he doesn't win. He runs third and just struggled. And I'm like, wow, man, that was like, how could I be so wrong on this horse? But you know, moments like that, it just takes the wind out of your sails and, and, you know, but you got to just, get right back up again, think positive. And, um, as long as the horse comes back fine, you know, uh, you'll, you'll, as you know, long as you get a chance to play another day, but sort of spoiled, you know, I've, I've spoiled myself because I've surrounded myself with good people and we've won six derbies, but, you know, I look back, they said, what do you think of six derbies? I said, you know, I should have won eight, you know, because we had a lot of bad luck, but there's other guys that should have won also that I won because they had bad luck, you know? Right. So, I can't look at it that way. I've won a lot of races where I didn't have the best horse, but I won because I had the trip, you know, and the Derby is all about, you need a good horse, but you need the trip. But one thing about Jack, Jack is very, he knows what's going on. He sees something. If I made a mistake, I'm the first one to say, you know what? I don't, I didn't, I didn't do a very good job preparing that horse. I, I really, Preakness last year, uh, we lost to Preakness and it looked like a layup. You know, and it just didn't happen. We ran second. I'm, I was shaking. We were all looking at each other. Like, what was that? You know, but man, we come back when the Breeders' Cup Classic. But these horses, they'll make fools out of you, and sometimes, but you just got to shake it off. And you know, if you realize what went wrong, that's the main thing. And that's one thing about Jack. Jack can pick up on that because he'll say, "You think this or that?" I go, "I think you're right." You know, and, and you got to be able to admit it. When, when something went wrong. How important is it, the relationship between trainer and jockey, and how much input will you take from certain jockeys? I'm sure some have more to say than others, but obviously 
you know, game planning for a race, especially something like, you know, the, the stampede of the Kentucky Derby is important. But how important is that relationship between trainer and jock? You have to have mutual respect for each other. You know, the last thing you want is a jockey riding for you, knowing that if he doesn't give you a good ride, he's going to get fired. You don't want him feeling that. And you don't want I, certain jockeys ride for me. I have good luck with them. They're not intimidated by me or my horses. I usually don't say a whole lot. You know, I really don't want to give too many instructions because they actually know more than I do. I just tell them what a horse doesn't like or whatever. Last year, I told Johnny Velasquez, we talked about it days coming to the Derby, authentic. I told him, no lead, no win. You have to work out a trip to have the lead by the time you get to the end of of the first turn. And he mastered this plan. He told me about it. So it sounds good to me, but... Because these guys, they know, they're pros. They know how the other jockeys think. We know, have an idea of the other, how the, the jockey's going to ride that horse or what they're thinking. So they work out the trip. It's like a skier. You'll see these skiers on these downhill, and they're trying to figure out their moves. They got their eyes. They know what they're going to do. If, every, if they break, they have to get away from the game. So I like a jockey that has a game plan, an A game plan, and a B. Most of them, like the good ones have an A and B. Most riders, when A goes bad, there's no B or C. Everything goes bad, you know. But you want a guy that when he gets on that horse, and those horses, they can feel that energy from your rider. I know as me, I, was, I try to be a jockey. And, and, and when I get on a horse and if I felt a little scared, they can feel the fear. And you don't want that. In the derby, a lot of pressure. It's like the masters. You see, how can all these good, great players hit a ball in the water at the Masters. And jockeys, they do the same thing in the Derby. They can make horrible mistakes, but uh, it's a lot of pressure. Jack, we were talking before, you're a Wall Street guy. We mentioned that worked at Jeffries. Instinct, in my opinion, and a lot of people will push back against it. I think instinct plays such a vital role, at least in the Wall Street that I grew up in, and probably you as well. Instinct in this business, the horse business, is, I think, critical as well, because a lot of times you see things that other people don't see. Can you make that comparison, the instincts of a great Wall Street trader to the instincts of a great horse person? Well, you use your instincts in the horse business in a number of different ways. I mean, beginning at the sales and going from the sales to the breaking process, then to the races and getting the right trainer, getting the, the right jockey. The thing that's easy about Bob's relationship and myself is, I mean, he's got tremendous instincts and I don't even have to be involved because <laughs> what am I going to tell Bob to tell the jockey? What am I going to tell Bob which race to run the horse in? So, you know, my instincts, once the horse is at the track, especially with Bob, and we have an active partner with Tom Ryan and SF Bloodstock. So in the, the buying process, which I've been very involved through the years and have to use your instincts there. We've got such a good team. I'm not really involved in that process either. So uh, I agree with you that instincts are important in, in the business, but at this stage with Bob, I don't, I don't think my instincts come in much into play. Well, Jack, I think you're uh, selling yourself short in the sense of selling a stock that's a loser and just getting out of the portfolio the same way you would not wanting to expend more on a horse and put, you know, getting it out of the barn, so to speak, or out of the uh, stable you do. But I think for people listening right now that don't appreciate what a business this is, you have your guys, you have the horse sale and 
July, August, September. I mean, that's your NFL draft or those three. So you guys are already preparing. You're already getting sheets or whatever you want to call it, previews on these horses and you and Bob and the other bloodstock agents are out there. And that's where this really all starts, right? And that's where you're raising money for the partnership. And if you could just take two or three minutes to talk about your partnership, and I think a lot of people out there that invest in, quote, hedge funds or partnerships might understand a little bit in terms of, uh, you don't have to get into all the nitty gritty of the numbers, but the way that you share with your partners, and I was one of them, is very generous and very participatory. So you just talk about that for a second. Laurie and I started buying yearlings ourselves back in 2000. Once we saw the uh, capital requirements and the risk involved, we decided to start taking on partners in 2003. And we had one partner to start with, then another. And then Donnie Lucarelli came in and joined me, I don't know, 15 years or so ago. And uh, he's no longer with us, but he and I really sort of got the thing rolling. And through the years, we've got partners that total like 12 plus one right now. And we've got some partners that have been with us 14, 15, 12 years and all. So we haven't had much turnover. We get a, a new one every once in a while. But the way the thing is formed is uh, we're a general partnership for a number of reasons. Uh, the members join normally through an LLC for the limited liability component. Our partnership is such that I invest in each one of them uh, the same percentage our other partners do so that when we don't make money, I don't make money also. And uh, my incentive is on the back end, and that's why it's good to have horses with Bob. <laughs> and they, we had a tremendous year in 2020, but um, I guess it's somewhat sort of uh, designed like your guys' hedge funds are. You know, If you make money, then you get paid. I think Credit Suisse or maybe Nomura would give you uh, five to one leverage maybe on swap if you wanted to put some of these horses. It sounds like they're in that business right now. So why don't you? No, I don't. You know, I don't. Think anybody <laughs> exactly. Speaking of credit, I want to get your guys' thoughts on sports gambling, specifically the impact that horses kept running, but obviously the at the track take was down. But gambling's exploded on all sports because of all the regulatory changes. But it seems like that you guys and owners and trainers and should be getting a larger percentage of the take, if you want to call it that, of this business and. I know that they're raking it in right now, no no pun intended, on the tracks and stuff and, the, and uh, the people that own the tracks. Well, Jack, I've been around Jack personally gambling on various things, but Jack, what are your thoughts kind of on the how to take advantage of it as an owner right now? Bob says he doesn't gamble. I get all my picks from his wife, Jill. She's pretty good. She may have some inside information. You know, you bring up an interesting point. The dynamics of the handle that's bet on these races only went down 1% through the pandemic. But the composition of, of the handle really is in a different fashion that the on-track betting, of course, is, is not there. And these ADWs, advanced deposit wagering things that you can you know bet through the internet or phone or, or whatever is completely different. And, and as far as a percentage of their handle that they handle, the horsemen and the purse monies, none of that goes towards that. So, you know, I was reading an article today. I think they attributed 60% of the handle to, to those type outfits. And the reason that we've had pretty good purses right now are the tracks that have gambling. And uh, Santa Anita and California tracks, uh, the Indians have uh, control of all that. So that may be a reason why they're sort of lagging behind. But when these casinos, decide to separate from the horse business for whatever reason, 
I think we might have some trouble, but it's going to be interesting over the next few years of how these purses are going to go. And as Bob said, you know, this California racing uh, uh, can be a little challenging. I mean, from an owner standpoint, it's great. I mean, you got small fields and you got the best trainer and normally the best horse. But uh, from the gambling aspect, the gamblers don't want to bet on the small field. So, guys, we had a guest on. It's probably the farthest thing from the two of you. He's a rock star. He's the front man of, of a, a rock band called the Airborne Toxic Event. And he just released an album last year and a memoir also. It's a New York Times bestselling memoir. And it's called Hollywood Park. And it was named after the racetrack, Hollywood Park. And it was about his experience with his dad. So here's the question for you. I asked Mikhail. He said, what, what does it mean to you that, that a track like that with that sort of history can be knocked down the way it was? What are these castles that were built for your sport? What do they mean to you? What does it mean to travel around the country with these horses and run these tracks? Well, yeah, it was pretty sad about Hollywood Park, but, you know, it was so big and it was beautiful. And what happened, it was just that all that land was sitting there and they just, they don't have the budget. Like these casinos came in and once you lose your fan base, you don't have attendances down. You're not selling and and now and with the traffic in LA I I, I knew that was going to go away it was tough to lose that but it was when the land becomes worth more than what they make that's what's happened to these racetracks I think Santa Anita eventually same thing's going to happen there when your track is sitting on a on a parcel of land it's you know they're making 20 million a year and the land's worth seven eight hundred million it just doesn't pencil out so I think the accountants have taken over the business, you know, about 15 years ago, and you're going to see a lot of tracks just go by the wayside. And probably there is too many tracks out there. But right now, the thing is, gambling is becoming easier on your phone and everything else. And that's the future. I mean, I think tracks need to be smaller. You're going to see smaller grandstands. Churchill Downs will always, they need the grandstand because Churchill Downs is basically two days of racing. That's where they make all their money. But eventually, you know, tracks like Belmont Park, it's so big. They don't need big parks anymore. No, they don't. And obviously, the first Saturday of May is coming up. And you're going to have two horses, God willing, Concert Tour and Medina Spirit. Both of them with a shot. They're all going to be looking probably to knock off essential quality. If memory serves, I think Brad Cox is training that horse. Give me sort of the handicap on your horses and where you think things are going to line up for the Derby this year. Well, right now, I had some really nice horses and everything. They got injured or something happened. But Medina Spirit, he's for sure going to run concert tour. I'm still on the fence. I'm, I, I don't know why he didn't perform like he did. I didn't, you know, even if he would have barely won it, I wouldn't have been happy with it. He's a horse I'm going to watch and train. And maybe he might be in it, might not. I might wait for the the preakness with him. I really don't want to, If you know, he took a step backwards. You want to be moving forward at this point. So I'm 50-50 on him. I'm not sure about him. He would be my best chance if I ran him. But the race is pretty wide open. My son, Bodie, who's 16, he says, when the Derby's sort of weak and all the horses, there's no superior horse, Todd Pletcher wins it every time. So I don't know. He thinks that Todd <laughs> Pletcher's going to win the Derby this year. So that's his take on it but he's got some nice horses in there but it is so wide open you got essential quality but there's a lot of them there's a lot of speed in the race there's a lot of horses that need the lead and have to be close and so it could be a real scramble when you have 20 horses 
lot goes on. It's one and lost on the first turn, so it's pretty wide open. And Jack, you had experience with Todd Pletcher. You have horses with him as well, obviously. You have any thoughts, you know, taking away the bias from Bob or horses that you may have at this point of your thoughts on the Derby? I know you're already handicapped. <laughs> you know, I, I agree with Bodie. That's when Todd does the best. And he, he's got, what, two or three shots this time. And, you know, he's a great trainer. I've, I've worked with him. He was basically the first trainer I worked with until we hooked up with Bob a few years ago. Actually, we had a nice Philly win at Keeneland the other day, a grade two horse named Jaster. So Todd's, to me, a great trainer, and he had tough luck trying to win his first one, and the first one he won was sort of in a mediocre field. So I'll go with Bodie this time, and but I can't, I can't root against Bob's horses if he ends up sending one or two over there. It was very neutral of you, Jack. I'll get your true pick later when we're talking. But, you know, I think I want to end with, I think people only see five, six minutes of racing a year, right? They see the three triple crown races and they don't realize the work and the effort that you guys put in. And there's bad days, there's good days, but I know it's been a, for both of you guys, it's a true passion and you're lucky to have found passion in both what you guys have done. And I think that's everyone's goal in life is to do that. And you guys have been, you guys taking it to the next level. So with that, I really want to thank you guys for coming on with us today. And maybe we'll have you back another preview uh, pre-Belmont or something. Or when they start having fans again, we'll do a live broadcast from you know one of those places. So, guys, thank you so much for coming on. We will catch up with you guys later. All right. Thanks, Danny. Dan, guy. Thanks again to Bob and Jack. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed it, if you learned something, if you had a few laughs, Share it with a friend. Maybe they'll enjoy it as well. We'll see you next week.